You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. The tourist industry started to pick up over spring break, and the numbers are still steady with some 20,000 daily arrivals. We reached out to uh, the state airport's deputy director, Ross Higashi, to understand how the department's been juggling the operations based on the growing number of travelers. Higashi has been with the airport's division for 30 years. He credits his managers, engineers, and the custodial staff in responding to these unprecedented times during the pandemic when physical distancing and sanitation is top of mind. Similar to the stock market, it goes up and down, so it was up. Back in 19, it was our peak year. Everything was just doing really gangbusters. And then all of a sudden, the pandemic hit us. And I'll just picture this place kind of like nobody's around. It was like a ghost town. I mean, whether you're driving around the airport or walking through the terminals, it was very, very empty. I can tell you right now um, that we are almost, we had like 20,000 plus passengers going through um, our airport system. And that is uh, very exciting news because it's good for also the state of Hawaii. And um, we've, already, we've always had our food staff ready to go. Um, I want to tell you that uh, we did have to add a lot of different types of responsibilities, whether it be uh, sanitizing and wiping down chairs or even with the travel screening program that was basically started from its infancy back in March and it's morphed into what it is today. And I think Hawaii has one of the better, I guess, protection or security type programs to vet out passengers that may have the virus. And I think we've done a good job. Our, pa- our staff has pretty much kept um, following CDC guidelines so they themselves don't get you know, infected as well. So we've had a very low number. I want to knock on wood that nobody else gets uh, infected here as far as our state um, employees are concerned. But um, we've done a lot, and we're ready for the um, comeback of tourism. If they're already coming back, you, take, you can take a look at the numbers on our HTA website. The majority of the passengers are tourists for leisure travel, and we've noticed that passengers have been staying here for a longer period of time, somewhere between five and seven days. You want to talk about concessions, everything's pretty much open. They're not open as long as they were before. Some of the shops are still closed. The concessions do monitor and observe the passenger flow. They also monitor the flights coming in, the scheduled flights. So they, they work around, you know, checking to see in advance of what to expect. Food and beverage, you know, our partners, they've done a good job. You know, passengers need to eat. We have the blind vendors that have small snacks and you know, newspapers, sundry-type items, uh, magazines for the, the tourists as well. Um, as far as rental cars, I think you might have heard about re- the rental car industry. The rental car industry had basically a lot of cars left the islands because of the, the pandemic. And as a result, now they're trying to bring back the inventory. We're at about uh, 75% inventory of we had before. A lot of people have been complaining that they go on the website and they cannot find a car available. And part of that is, like I said earlier, is that the, the length of time passenger or the tourists are staying here is longer. It's about five to seven, seven days. It's a lot of leisure travel rather than business travel. And let me just tell you this, um, myself and my bond underwriters, my bankers, 
when we went to borrow money, that was the forecast. That was the prediction that Hawaii will be resilient because we are a leisure-type destination. You know, you can't touch, feel, smell the islands via a virtual communication like, you know, via Zoom or Teams or whatnot. So um, we're pretty much ready to go or we are ready to go, and, and we've done a pretty good job. Uh, the concessions are doing well. Uh, they're back, I want to say, maybe about 50%, and um, they're monitoring the, the spending habits of the, uh, the tourists. I think what we can see is that um, we've got tourists that basically were pent up, and we hope that tourism continues to grow, knowing that uh, the vaccination programs throughout the country is, is um, getting there. Well, what else can you tell us about the lift, you know, because we are hearing, you know, Hawaiian, Alaska, you know, those folks uh, adding, you know, more routes back, and, you know, and, and I'm not sure what you're hearing from the Airlines Committee, you know, from United, Delta, you know, JL. Well, as far as Lyft is concerned, we expect to be somewhere near 80, 90 percent by June as far as scheduled passengers. We look at the official airline guide. Again, as far as they call it load factors, the amount of passengers that take up the seating in, a, in, a, in an aircraft, um, that's to be seen. Um, but we do know that uh, by summer, um, based on the official airline guide and what we've seen from our carriers and meeting with them, we're looking at somewhere between 90 to 100% return as far as lift is concerned. The only area that is struggling is international, as you know, is because, for example, our Japan does not, they have, we have, they call it a pre-departure document check uh, program that they're working on, but right now they can get tested from trusted partners and come to Hawaii and be free to go. But the problem is when J Japanese tourists go back to Japan, they still have to uh, quarantine for 14 days. So until that probably gets eased up, um, we won't see international traffic for a while. And you just started, I think, uh, with Korea, right, this past week or so? Yeah, well, Japan has been coming in and, yeah, Korea, yeah. They have very limited flights, again, because, you know, it's that issue with the international countries where when they go back, they want their people to still quarantine, so it kind of that's the situation. It's kind of hard unless you can go back home and telework, I would say. What about uh, China Airlines? No, we don't have anything going on right now. Wow, so just still dead in the water from, yeah. from that country. Yeah. And I, I know you've got lots of construction going on over there, you know, hearing the, the equipment in the background. What's the latest on, I know you folks call it the Conrac uh, project, you know, for the, the rent-a-cars. How's that going? That is to be um, fully operational by the end of the year. Our projection is December, provided that we don't have any hiccups with construction. And as far as getting the, uh, the fleet of rental cars back up, any word from the vendors there? I've been reaching out to them, knowing that you're going to call me today. <laughs> um, the issue that we have right now is inventory or car manufacturing. It's about the car manufacturers not being able to to get the cars out because they're having problems with the chips. You know, chip manufacturers, there's, there's a backlog uh, or delay. So a lot of cars rely on computer chips to be part of the, the car itself. So, you know, how 
smart cars and they're getting a little smarter today. So until chip manufacturers can provide the chips, we will see a, a, a low inventory on, on cars. So as you know, we need more cars right now. If you go online, like I said earlier, it may say that no car is available. Well, I bet you the taxi cab companies might be happy, huh? I'm very sure. I mean, <laughs> we have the alternative. Um, we started Uber Lyft a couple of years ago. I shouldn't call it Uber Lyft. I should call it um, TNCs, Transportation Networks Companies. Uh, we also provide taxi service, and we also provide shuttle service as well. Okay, so th those are probably picking up uh, with the lack of uh, rental cars uh, being available at this point. I'll say so. And as far as anything else that you could share with us just on the airport modernization, I know at, at one point, you know, there was a lot of criticism about the state of the bathrooms, that kind of thing. Oh, so, yeah, so all the restrooms at the Daniel K. Inouye International Airport are being renovated. We expect that to be also done by the end of the year. We call it Terminal 2. It's the overseas terminal. As far as the Terminal 1, which is the inter-island terminal, that will be done probably within by the end of 2022. But every restroom that you see at the airport will be renovated. That is something that I wanted, and um, hopefully by the time my time is up in 2022, it will be done. That was Ross Higashi, Deputy Director for the Airports Division at the State Transportation Department. Again, Higashi tells us that work on that new Honolulu Overseas Terminal, the Malka Concourse on track right now to open this fall, which should help with efficiencies at the airport. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Sippy's Restaurants, now offering dishes such as chili in bulk bags and pouches ready for the family to heat and eat or to freeze for later. Online ordering at zippies.com or by downloading the app. This is The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. You know, Western Australia is isolated from the rest of the continent by desert, and its economy is dominated by iron ore mining. New Zealand is a series of islands, and its economy is dominated by food and agriculture. Both have seen external shocks due to fluctuating prices of iron ore and dairy. Sound familiar? Well, a new brief from the University of Hawaii Economic Research Organization, UHIRO, looks at the similarities between these economies and Hawaii as well as attempts to diversify. The report was written by Stephen Bond-Smith, a senior research fellow at the Bankwest Curtin Economic Center at Curtin University in Western Australia. But he'll be joining the UHERO staff later this fall. He spoke with HPR's G uh, Jason Ubai and explained how it's difficult to innovate in isolated places. So innovation is something that's really difficult in isolated places because you need these random meetings of people that have just parts of an idea that they need to connect and these knowledge spillovers that occur between people to then generate the new innovation, some new idea, a new tech company, whatever the idea is. Um, and these are just going to happen less frequently in these isolated places because people aren't really traversing through there that often. Now, the nice thing with Hawaii is that it is a little bit of a hub. 
and that you've got a lot of people actually coming in and out of Hawaii. You need to create opportunities that people can meet. And so the fact that Hawaii already has some convention travel and things like that, um, um, convention events to attract business travelers, does mean you will get some more serendipity than what you would get in say other Pacific islands. Um, and certainly more probably than what, what we get in New Zealand. Um, but it's still gonna be difficult. Ideally is you would have these people also meeting with locals to generate this opportunity for serendipity. So encouraging more sort of local participation in what are otherwise international conventions would, would generate these opportunities for serendipity and knowledge spillovers to the sort of broader international networks that Hawaii connects with simply by being, um, at least in non-COVID times, much more well-connected internationally and to the mainland United States. Um, the next thing is that you would focus on particular industries. So we already have a, a specialization in the visitor industry. So you've got this mass of people that have a whole lot of knowledge about different aspects of the visitor industry. And those people need to be able to connect. And you, so if, when you're gonna get serendipitous innovative ideas in Hawaii, they're more likely to be in something that's highly related to the visitor industry. So ideally we want, you want to be supporting the sort of activities and the sort of businesses that might start up that would branch out from the existing knowledge base that Hawaii's got in visitor industry, because that's where these ideas are going to be more likely. Can you talk about that? What are some examples of some of the capabilities and some of the things that, you know, people have the, the know-how in tourism and how does that relate to other fields? Okay. So to figure out what you can do with your existing capabilities and how they can be transferred to new industries, you really need to ask the people that are in those industries. So I don't have enough knowledge about hospitality or leisure or this industry in Hawaii. Um, so I would want to ask the people that work in those industries, you know, what else they, how else they can apply their, uh, their capabilities to other industries. One, one simple idea that I have is, um, so tourism hospitality requires say international world-class chefs. And you also have this wide array of food and uh, different types of food in Hawaii um, from all the, from the blends of all different cultures. So I could imagine um, a new industry could start up, which could be training world-class hospitality chefs that could learn from the existing knowledge base of the, of the chefs that are in your existing convention hotels. They could have practicum type um, training um, in all sorts of different types of world food whereas other places in the world might be much more concentrated in their particular local foods. So this would be a, a really niche type of training industry for chefs. But to ultimately know if that industry is gonna work, you would need to talk to people who are in the hospitality industry who work in hospitality training and figure out if that's really gonna fly and exactly what's needed perhaps to get something like that off the ground. What I can do though is, um, what we've done is seen that when, when places diversify into new activities like this, they repurpose their existing capabilities into other, into other industries. And what you see is that when economies grow, they diversify into these related industries. So what we can do is we can look at all the different places in the United States. We can look at every county in the United States and see how often do you see two industries together? So how often do you see, in this case, chef training and hospitality in the same place? And if you see those highly, if you see those often together, but at the moment, the chef training part is really weak in Hawaii, well, that suggests that it's probably a really good candidate industry for something that Hawaii could do. So we can do this for all the different industries, um, disaggregate the data as much as possible and look at every county and then figure out this relationship between all the different industries. 
and then look for clusters of those and clusters of opportunities in Hawaii and see how we can support those, see how we can support the activities that kind of bind those clusters together. I wanted to go back to um, you know, the, the idea of serendipity and um, kind of being a, a, hot, a, a hub here. Um, and Hawaii has been described as this gateway from Asia to the US. Um, but you're saying, I mean, it's no longer the case. I mean, there's direct flights from uh, the US West Coast to Japan, uh, you know, and basically a lot of connectivity there. But, you know, there, you, you mentioned something that uh, there could, uh, in your report, that there, we could be a gateway for the BRICS country. And, you know, for our listeners, that's Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. So can you explain that advantage to us? Sure. So Hawaii is still a long way from the, from the West Coast, as you all know. Um, and so even when people come to do business in Hawaii, um, that's not necessarily, doesn't necessarily work as a gateway to the rest of the United States. Um, so the real, the real gateways are those, those large port cities like Long Beach um, and San Francisco. And, um, and it sort of bypasses Hawaii, both, both with shipping or with, or with air travel. Hawaii is sort of strategically positioned between China and Brazil. So two of the largest BRICS countries, very, very significant growth. Um, China at the moment purchases a lot of iron ore from Western Australia, but I also know they're trying to divert their, uh, diversify their sources of iron ore. They use a lot of iron ore construction because they're growing so fast. Um, so they also source a lot of iron ore from Brazil. It's one of the main exports from Brazil. So there's a lot more trade going on between all of these BRICS countries than what existed say 10 years ago. Um, and the fact that this trade is going on, that trade needs to be facilitated somehow. People need to make business deals. People need to meet, they need to get to know each other. They need to get to trust each other. Um, and often this trust can only really be built with face-to-face -face contact. So there's kind of an opportunity, I think, for Hawaii to make it really easy for people to, who, for people, businessmen who are gonna do business deals between China and Brazil or elsewhere in South America um, to meet halfway in between in Hawaii and have their business deals, maybe have a holiday on the side, enjoy the hospitality and tourism that Hawaii has to offer. But Hawaii, Hawaii's existing visitor tourism industry has um, some capabilities that could be offered to help facilitate these business transactions. Now, it also requires that they might need professional services to help them facilitate investment banks, insurance, all of these types of things. There's also capabilities that are provided just by being part of the United States, that there's really strong economic institutions to protect their investment. And so this makes quite a compelling offer, but it's also something that perhaps other places in the United States can't offer quite so well. Um, and other places in the world can't offer quite so well because Hawaii is much more strategically placed in between. The next alternative is perhaps places in Europe. So at the moment, for instance, if you fly to, from, from Beijing to Sao Paulo, it typically goes via Frankfurt or, um, or Heathrow, which seems a little bit strange. And the flight times are, are very similar via Honolulu, but you would only have to go halfway if you were meeting somebody there to make your business deal. Um, so that becomes quite an attractive kind of offering, but you gotta be able to bundle all of these different capabilities together about leisure and hospitality with professional services and financial services um, and bundling that together as a product to then attract people is a little bit more difficult and requires a bit of support. That was Stephen Bond-Smith, an economist based in Western Australia, who will be joining UHERO as an assistant professor in the fall.
Support for HPR comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits and their initiatives, including vaccinations to help protect residents from COVID-19, such as the Filipino Community Center, NairitHawaii.com. Joining us for today's Reality Check segment is Honolulu Civil Beats Politics and Opinion Editor, Chad Blair. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Captain. So we're featuring a story. It's really interesting. It's a co-working, co-living space. Kind of clever. It is, and it's from Stuart Yurt, and I'm covering for him today. Um, you know, we've, we've been reporting at Civil Beat several stories now on people that have been coming to Hawaii, particularly from places like Silicon Valley in part to write out the pandemic, uh, especially when California was really a hot spot, but, but also to, to work here because they can do so remotely, right? They can bring their laptop to the connection. The word for them, the description is digital nomads, right? Um, and so what Stewart found was a, a local real estate developer. His name is R.J. Martin. He's known for building affordable greenhouses on, on the west side of Oahu out on the Windward Coast. But you're right. He's, he's come up with this co-living space. The idea is to have uh, people become residents. And it, by the way, it's, it's located near HPR. Did you yes. know that? It's the Century, <laughs> Cent, Century, Center, Century Center building. I said that too fast. Century Center. Boy, that's a mouthful. But it's, yeah, it's right there on Kalakaua. It's one of the few high-rises in the area. And R.J. And Martin is actually renting out and, and reformatting the penthouse, a penthouse suite. Yeah, it, it is an interesting location because you're right there, you know, at the, the edge of Waikiki. Uh, you've got the convention center, mm-hmm. you know, access, to, you know, to Waikiki and all that that offers. Uh, but you're right there on the cusp, you know, uh, being here uh, right near Koheka Street. Right. And so the, the name of this uh, co-living space is called Surf Break HNL, right? HNL for Honolulu. And he's going to rent out about a dozen small bedrooms for the workspace. So he's looking to have 12 residents. Uh, and then they would share a living space, a dining space. I think they have to share some bathrooms, too. So that could prove challenging. But the idea is to, uh, to have folks rent for as little as three to six months at a time. I mean, that's so rare in Honolulu to be able to get a lease for only three months or six months. Um, but this Surf Break Honolulu space will have a wired Internet. Residents will get a Vicky's bike pass. Uh, there's uh, even going to be a studio for videos and podcasts, all self-containing. Uh, R.J. Martin actually envis- envisions building a community, what he says, of, of global citizens, all in this penthouse on top of Century Center. And I love how he uh, uh, got one of the uh, interested um, residents to really just design this studio. Right, and and the, one of the first people that's actually going to move in has been uh, living in a hotel in Waikiki, and so you can imagine, even though the rent's going to be pretty steep, sixteen hundred a month, you know that's a lot cheaper than renting a hotel room in Waikiki. You know, ultimately, this is not only about attracting uh, people that are uh, higher income earners. Of course, that would boost our economy with the local tax base, but also trying to reverse the brain drain, which we've been talking about. 
for decades here, and and R.J. Martin really feels that's important, and that's all part of a concerted effort locally. You might have heard of the Movers and Shockers program, right? Very similar goal. Uh, we don't quite know how many people this uh, this applies to. The the studies are vague in terms of the, the sheer numbers, but clearly the state, including the Department of Business, Economic Development, and Tourism, believes this is a growing workforce for locals. Uh, and uh, Martin seems to be capitalizing on this opportunity. Yeah, the Movers and Shake, uh, Shaka's program, I think, just launched last month. Uh, but I think they got a lot of interest. So this is certainly, uh, you know, an, another offering uh, in this area. Yeah, of course, there there will remain obstacles. One of the things that Martin admitted himself is zoning challenges. I mean, it's it's not always easy to, to create a, a living space like this, given the zoning laws. And of course, fundamentally, and this is what you were alluding to with movers, movers and shakas, you got to have interest. There's got to be buy-in from the public. And so, it is an experiment, but um, it's kind of nice to hear people trying to, to if you will, um, take the pandemic and move from it and be inspired to think of new ways of growing our local workforce. Yes, it's all about innovation. Yes. Thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Captain. That was politics and opinion editor Chad Blair to read. The story by business reporter Stuart Yurton. Head to civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Life, serving Oahu, Maui, Kauai, and the Big Island of Hawaii. Listings and information at hawaiilife.com. You know, Netflix released its very first original film featuring Hawaiians and the Hawaiian culture in Finding Ohana earlier this year. It was filmed around Oahu in late 2019 and features several actors born and raised in our state. Movies have been shooting in our island since 1913, according to the Hawaii Film Office. Blue Hawaii, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Jurassic Park are some of the most notable. But very few major productions have actually been about Hawaii's people and culture. Could that be changing? We share this rebroadcast of one of the segments on the conversation. Uh, Russell Subiano, one of our producers, talked to the film's screenwriter and two of its stars about an evolving industry. Dad, hello. What if Papa doesn't have internet? <laughs> Yo, Wale, please don't kill your sister. You guys look taller in the picture. That's how Finding Ohana starts out. A single mother living in New York brings her teenage son and daughter back to her family's home on Oahu to care for her father. When the daughter finds a treasure map amongst her grandfather's items, it sets off an adventure that brings them closer to their Hawaiian heritage and each other. If it sounds a little like a 80s adventure movie set in the Aloha State, it's because that's exactly what the screenwriter envisioned. Christina Strain is a Korean-American raised on a U.S. military base in South Korea until she moved to the United States as an adult, where she enrolled in the American Film Institute. So I, when I got into an AFI, like, I will never forget this. I was hanging out with some of my friends who had gone. They were excited for me to go, and they were like, what do you want to write when you get there? And I just remember saying, like, I want to write Goonies in Hawaii. I love that movie, and I'm sure you feel a similar way. Like, Ki Kwan being in Indiana Jones and Goonies was a huge thing for oh, me. Because yeah. yeah. part of my love for those movies was, like, the first time that I could kind of see myself in the adventure. Yeah. So, like, 
I, more than anything, the thing I wanted to write were movies that appealed to not only me, but like 15-year-old me, like the kind of movies that I would have loved to Mm -hmm. see as a kid and a teenager. And just like, I tend to write like past me a lot because I feel like I'm, that's what makes me happiest, like entertaining myself. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that like the thing that I loved about Goonies was the adventure of it, but I also love telling identity stories. So the idea of being able to write a script about an Asian American Pacific Islander girl kind of understanding where she came from mm-hmm. appealed to me as somebody who went through a similar sort of process. You know, not to spoil the movie too much, but the main character, she has a single mom who raised her in a metropolitan city who then goes to a place where she suddenly sees herself and kind of like understands where she she came from without having a ton of frame of reference before and like i grew up in korea so i got very much my korean culture but again when i moved to the u.s i didn't realize at the time just how korean i was (laughs) and so i moved it like i remember buying movie tickets and bowing so there were just Uh like little things like that where it was an interesting thing to be able to write the adventure that I really wanted to see as a kid, but also kind of a personal journey of discovery for myself. And to marry those two things together is what this movie is. The filmmakers hope Finding Ohana will serve as an opportunity to showcase some of the things that make life in Hawaii unique. Our family relationships, our mythology, and our native language. All things that receive very limited screen time outside of small, locally produced films or documentaries. Kamehameha Schools alum Kelly Hu, who has over 125 credits during her time working in film and television, plays the single mother. She says this was her first opportunity to speak Olelo Hawaii on screen. There was actually a whole scene between me and Branscombe Richmond, who plays my father, where it was supposed to be in Hawaiian. And we kind of went back and forth about that. The reason why we decided to do it kind of hapa, right, like Mm -hmm. half Hawaiian, half English, was because the director said, and I think rightfully so, when you put things in, you know, like subtitles, oftentimes people are so busy reading the subtitles that they're not watching the scene. Right. And it was such an important scene in the movie between a father and daughter ho'oponopono scene that, you know, we didn't want to take away from the attention of the acting and the scene itself by, you know, only doing it in Hawaiian where people would have to read the subtitles. Mm -hmm. So we did as much as we could, you know, going back and forth. I actually did the editing of the scene so that I felt like it was enough English and enough Hawaiian to be, you know, respecting the the Hawaiian culture, uh, the olelo, as you were saying, but yet enough that non-Hawaiian speaking people would be able to understand. And so I think it was a good balance. I think it's so interesting for for not just people from Hawaii, but I think people from, from outside of Hawaii who are not familiar with Hawaiian culture at all to be able to experience Hawaiian language being spoken. Also among the Polynesians in the cast is Branscombe Richmond, who plays the grandfather. This is our Ohana's land. I'm gonna die before I leave. All right! Ohana is a big part of you. You know why? Because you, Hawaiian. Richmond's father was Tahitian, and his mother was born in Hawaii. He's been in the film industry for nearly 50 years, initially as a stuntman, but for the majority of the time, as a working actor and producer. 
He believes opportunities for Polynesians and other indigenous people's stories to be told in movies and on television are on the rise. I don't want to say it's our time. I don't want to say that. What I want to say is it's time that everyone gets to see a slice of life for everybody. It's, it's inclusion. It's also um, the belief that this world is made up of so many people that how lucky we are to know a little bit about them. So, you know, uh, I've, I've been an actor and a stunt guy for so long. And for the last 20 years, I've also been a producer behind the camera. And I know what stations are buying what. I know what advertisers are going to spend their money on. And it's a very calculated mathematical system. A lot of things don't happen by chance. They happen for a reason. So here we are. You know, Netflix has this Hawaiian movie, Finding Ohana. Netflix threw the dice on the table, is playing their best cards. And you know what? This movie's getting huge, huge response. Because not only do people of color or Polynesian families want to want to see or know or reintroduce themselves to this, but it's also people of all colors. You know, I want to say this, white is a color. So people that may not be of the, you know, tan persuasion, they too want to know about their brothers and sisters across the room. And that's what makes me proud about Finding Ohana. I mean, wait till you see it. With a, with a wonderful director named Jude Wang, she is wonderful, and she's sensitive. And with a young cast of Polynesian people, got a girl, Lindsay Watkins. I mean, she graduated from Kamehameha, and, uh, and, and our two leads. I mean, they, they are just absolutely really good in this movie. It sounds like you're pretty hopeful for opportunities for Hawaiian stories to be told and for Hawaiian actors to get a chance to make a career out of this. I am very hopeful. Because the next wave of generation are these kids in this movie. And my grandkids, my actual grandkids, who may decide to do whatever they want to do, they've got stories to tell as well. There are so many talented people from Polynesia that are, are going to start to see doors open where maybe they didn't, where the marketplace was only local. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It was just local. But now it's going to kind of get big. No one can predict the future, but with cultural inclusion seemingly on the rise in the film and television industry, things look bright for up-and-coming actors and filmmakers from the Aloha State. Finding Ohana, with its blend of heart, laughs, and Hawaiian culture, could be the project to swing the doors wide open for them. I just want to grab my sister who thinks she's Indiana Jones. We'll get them. My kids are inside a mountain looking for some Spanish gold. I have to enter. I mean, no disrespect. Your turn. What's up, Mountain? You looking beautiful right now. We're good. We can go now. We just have to go through the jaws of death. That sounds inviting. Oh! oh. See? He's the okay. Don't move. Why does it have so many eyes? Those aren't eyes. I know you're scared, but I'll be right here the whole time. I gotta do this for Papa. That was the conversations Russell Subiono speaking with Finding Ohana actors Kelly Hu and Branscombe Richmond and screenwriter Christina Strain. To hear the full interviews with each of them, go to the conversation page on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org.